When you think about the coronavirus currently sweeping the globe, chances are that food is not the first word that comes to your mind. Yet food has amplified the devastating effects caused by COVID-19, and the pandemic has exposed deep vulnerabilities across our food system. How exactly is food related to the pandemic? And how can we redesign our food systems in a way that helps us avoid similar crises in the future? My name is Amanda Wood, and to help answer these questions, I have Professor Jess Fonzo at the John Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics and Dr. Lena Gordon, Director of the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. Both are experts on global food systems and the links between people, the environment, and food. And together, we'll search for silver linings for our food system in the midst of this crippling pandemic. Welcome to Rethink Talks. Thank you both so much for being here today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Today, it is all about food, the coronavirus, and transformation. And both of you are bringing quite a wealth of information to this discussion. So can we start by just quickly introducing um, what our research topics are? And Jess, as our remote guest, um, I'd like you to go first. Yeah, so my name is Jess Fonzo. I am a professor at Johns Hopkins University sitting in DC. Um, and I work mainly at the intersection between diets, agriculture, and climate change. And really, how do we try to ensure that people can get access to healthy and sustainable diets? And what's the role of the food system in doing that? Great, thanks. And, and Lena? Thanks. Um, I'm Lene Gordon, I'm the director of Stockholm Resilience Center, and I also do most of my research is around understanding how we as a human species can live a good life on this planet by really taking care of the biosphere and by focusing then on, on water resources management and food systems as sort of key entry points for how we manage the biosphere in a good way. Great. Wow. What a combination of expertise we have today. Uh, now, Jess, today we'll be using the term food system quite a lot. But what does it really mean when we say a food system? Yeah, food system is uh, looking at how food is produced, how it's stored, how it's moved around the world, how it's processed, packaged, and then it hits markets, uh, what some of us call the food environment, the place where you as a consumer, you walk into a store, you walk into a restaurant, and you make a decision about what you're going to purchase or order. And that whole connectivity, that chain of events that happens encompasses the food system. But it, it goes further than that because there's a lot of different external drivers that shape food systems like urbanization, climate change, which Lina knows well, uh, migration, politics, trade. These are all happening outside the food system, but they greatly shape the functionality uh, of food systems, the equity of food systems. And I think one big piece that we often forget about in the research world is that people 
drive this system. People are at the center of the system. Mm-hmm. Many people work in it. Uh, many people interact with it. So yeah. the food system is the the combination of all of those things. And it very much interacts with other systems, like, for example, the health system. Mm. We can think of that interaction right now with COVID. COVID is a health issue. It's an infectious disease that has impacted the health system. And it's in turn impacting the food system and its functionality. Right. Okay. So you're telling us in this 30 minutes, we have to touch on everything related to food in the pandemic. Okay, let's, let's go. Uh, so, so Lena, in one of the previous Rethink Talks episodes, they were really highlighting how environmental degradation and loss of nature was linked with these infectious diseases like the novel coronavirus. But can you just tell us a bit about how are our current food systems driving um, this environmental disruption? and loss of nature. Mm. The way that we produce food today is really one of the largest drivers for environmental degradation. So uh, it around 25% of our greenhouse gas emissions are related to f- the food system. Um, 75 to 80% of sort of the drivers behind um, uh, land use change and biodiversity loss is also related to the food system. And biodiversity and land use are really connected also to the way mm. that this type of infectious diseases are emerging. So humans are sort of taking a bigger and bigger part of the biosphere and uh, changing so many different processes. And sometimes then that disrupts uh, some of the fundamentals for our societies. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, food is also needed for us for of health, etc. So it's not that we can totally um, stop <laughs> producing yeah. foods. We need to find ways that we can manage food within sort of the a safe operating space of mm. this uh, biosphere. Right. But it sounds like our current food system Mm. is laying the foundation for some of these crises to continue. Mm. Um, And and Jess, we know that there are some vulnerabilities that already exist in our food system. Let's think about diets. So we know millions of people around the world are eating suboptimal diets. Uh, Why is good nutrition so key to responding to the coronavirus? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, we knew it before that diets are a a significant risk factor of morbidity and mortality in the world. And uh, there's a lot of reasons why people don't get access to a healthy diet. It's not just food system insufficiencies, but also societal systemic issues around marginalization of certain populations, uh, discrimination, inequity across the entire food system. And healthy diets are, are quite uh, expensive for many in the world. Mm. So when you layer COVID on top of that, you see real vulnerabilities and future potential vulnerabilities. I think we're not quite certain how COVID is, is impacting the food system. It's too early and mm. data is, is not robust in, in looking at um, impacts on food access to 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 for to consumers um but this could be just a taster of what could come it, it's it's going to get harder if food prices go up it's going to get harder if we can't move food around the world and we're seeing a bit of that with uh, food being dumped or food being wasted because distribution channels are not working 
Um, we're seeing markets being closed. Um, so this is going to further constrain the ability for uh, populations to be able to access healthy diets. Much of that, the perishable foods, the fruits, the vegetables, the animal source foods, the dairy uh, that contribute to, to human health. So um, this will really continue to constrain uh, key populations. And I, I don't call them vulnerable because vulnerable is an outcome of, of mm. you become food insecure, you become mm. uh, malnourished, um, but uh, you're marginalized, which, you know, it's, it's you're, you're excluded from uh, the food system. Yeah. yeah, it seems like if you have good diet related health, you would have more sort of resilience to to fight back on a virus. But uh, I, but I hope that this is an emerging area of, of research that mm -hmm. that comes out. Um, so not great to hear that diets haven't been good before and now they might get even worse through this uh, pandemic. Um, and now, Lena, if we've touched a bit on the production, mm. we've talked a little bit about diets, but if we think about what Jess was saying, the food system as a whole food system, mm. I mean, there are all kinds of vulnerabilities that have been exposed um, mm. in those, what you could say, middle bits of the system. Uh, so what do you think are some of these really key vulnerabilities that have come up? Mm. No, but I think as Jess also was pointing to, there's still so much that we don't know and we don't have the data yet. But I think it's been interesting to, to see what are some of the things that suddenly appear as a vulnerability. So for example, I think we've been thinking quite a bit before about um, the resilience in the production system and mm. also um, the global distribution of food. Um, and what happens if we have multiple droughts happening across the world at the same time and we suddenly have a loss of, of food availability and that we can't distribute it in the same way. Uh, but suddenly what happened now with the closure of border is that we also saw the importance of the mobility of people mm. for our food system. So in Sweden, for example, we realized how dependent our agricultural system is on uh, migrant workers. And I think that's something that came to many as a surprise uh, that yes. we are so de dependent also about the mobility of people around the world and, and that that kind of cheap labor, often um, not very good working conditions, etc., is also vulnerabilities that suddenly emerges and puts the focus on farmers and how can we have farmers that really have a good life uh, and uh, can provide us with food that's so essential for all of us. I think another one is, of course, um, the importance of schools and school meals. So when you close schools, some uh, groups of uh, children don't have access to the same nutritious meals anymore, and they don't have that uh, in their families, etc. Mm -hmm. So you suddenly see that type of vulnerabilities also, and those things maybe are things that we take for granted otherwise right. in the working food systems. Yeah, so um, all, all mm. through the food system, we are seeing a lot of these uh, vulnerabilities. And, and Jess, we are hearing a lot right now in discussions about COVID-19 and food security. You were already touching on some of these themes earlier, uh, but could you just describe for listeners what exactly is food security and, and why is it so much of a concern in this pandemic? Yeah, food security is when a person has sufficient, so enough calories 
um, so enough food, enough calories, uh, safe, healthy, affordable diets uh, at all times throughout their entire life. Um, and that's obviously dependent on uh, economics, physical well-being, but also, again, the food system and its ability to ensure that those kind of foods are available. So healthy, sufficient, and safe. Um, and uh, we've uh, been seeing declines in food security over the last two decades, but over the last three years, that number's been going up to roughly 821 million people go to bed hungry or food insecure. And a lot of that is due to climate change, what Lina is talking about, um, and as well as conflict, social unrest, mm -hmm. and again, coming back to uh, populations that are particularly marginalized really suffer from food insecurity. And the COVID is, is going to most likely, due to the economic fallout, people losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, uh, well, there's estimates that that number will go up. Those who are food, severely food insecure will go up, will double by the end of the year. That's what wow. that world program mm -hmm. is predicting. And I think we don't have, again, we don't have really solid numbers on that, but that's usually one of the first things that happens with livelihoods is you see mm -hmm. a shrinking of the caloric intake of, of a person or a family or a household you see the diet change to a much more simple, staple diet. Luxury foods like fruits and vegetables, animal source foods are out the window. People wow, can't yeah. afford them. So you see this very kind of basic diet. And then the, that leads to longer term repercussions on nutrition outcomes, the ability for children to grow and develop um, with this very kind of simple, low micronutrient uh, low health promoting type diet. Wow, so this can be devastating for, for millions of people who are already in a, in a very precarious position. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, in a lot of the things I've been reading or listening to, this issue of food security is often being tied with self-sufficiency. And we're seeing a, a very polarized debate, uh, though saying mm -hmm. we either need to really embrace these global markets and we need to keep nutrients and foods flowing around the world versus... Uh, which maybe it doesn't need to be, but versus we have to have short supply chains, national uh, self-sufficiency. So this is a complex issue. Uh, but but what are some just quick reflections on on this topic? Um, Jess, I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting debate. I mean, I like having my Ethiopian coffee. So if everything is going to be short value chains, I'm not going to get my, my coffee anymore. <laughs> I think it's really a tough thing. I think you need both. I yeah. think there's many countries that, that produce palm oil as their main crop. Are they going to eat palm oil for their diet? They're going to need food moving around the world and coming mm. into their country. Um, there are some countries that have moved away from agriculture and have moved much more towards services and manufacturing. They've gone through structural transformations and they need trade to work and they need long value chains to work. And if we're talking about diversity of diets, many of us live in, live in seasonal places. Mm. You can't grow raspberries in New York, upstate New York in yeah. December. Well, right? we're sitting I mean, in Sweden, Sweden so. 
<laughs> yeah. So you need, we need both. We need self-sufficiency. We need uh, countries to take ownership of their food system, govern their food system. Yeah. And Lena, I see you nodding yeah, a lot. So I, I just felt like it was very well put, I think. Uh, I completely agree. It, it's a co- very complex question, mm. but I totally agree we need these long uh, chains as well. Yeah. Um, I think there are many reasons why you should support local farmers and why you should buy locally mm. as a complement to them. Yeah. Um, uh, everything from having a little bit better understanding and and sort of knowledge about what's going on in the food system and in caring for the farmers that are actually sort of producing the food mm. and supporting that and seeing that in real life. I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, try to buy from mm. local farmers. But if you look at your overall food basket, it doesn't have to all come from that. And we can have these yeah. longer food chains. And there are places around the world where you don't even have the climate, water resources, or natural resources enough to produce food mm. for that. That population. Yeah. So I think just talking about self-sufficiency in a country where we have those resources, at least seasonally, is a little bit unfair yeah. also yeah. Uh, if we look in the global context. So uh, how to sort of rewire the food system so that we can have both and what the right yeah. combination is, that's, that is a tricky question and that's what we need to understand better. But I think that's just a great Mm. reflection that this doesn't have to be an either or answer, Mm. that it can be a both. And so let's find ways uh, to make these work together. So um, I I wish I was reading more of these types of questions or answers, but maybe they will come. Um, And now, Lena, we've talked about some pretty deep fractures in our food system that are only getting deeper uh, through this pandemic. Mm. So what does this really tell us about the resilience of our current food system? Well, I think it tells us that there are lots of uh, weaknesses in the resilience of the food system in general. But just maybe just think about what does resilience actually mean. Mm. And uh, I... I think about resilience as having three different sort of phases. It's both about coping when a disturbance happens, and then it's about adapting to changing circumstances. So if the climate is getting worse, if we're going to see more coronaviruses or other type of infectious diseases emerging, how do we sort of adapt uh, to live with them mm-hmm. um, in a world where they're more common? And then the third one is how, how do we transform to something that's better than what we have now and resilience when thinking about it it needs to have all of that the coping capacity with the situation now the adaptive capacity with the situation that's changing and the transformative Mm. capacity so we also use this crisis as a time to think about innovations and opportunities that can emerge as well as the Mm. vulnerabilities of the system right now. Um, And I think the other kind of part of resilience that is important to mention maybe is is often when you think about principles of how you build a resilience system, there are three things that are important. One is diversity. And we see that coming up a lot, I think, in this crisis. A more diverse farming system has often uh, it's easier to adapt to the situation. Um, uh, the, the other one is connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is something that can both create um, vulnerabilities, but also opportunities. So for example, the whole spread of the COVID uh, um, pandemic 
is a signal that we're overconnected right. in the system, yeah. right? But on the other hand, uh, connectivity also helps us uh, when there is a crisis. So mm. if there's a drought in a place, then you can uh, import from somewhere else. Or if you're a farmer and suddenly the the retailer that are buying your product is uh, collapsing. If you have multiple different actors that are buying from your farm, it's maybe easier to to find other avenues to sell mm. your products, etc. So how to manage that connectivity so it's at the right scale, that's right, another okay. big principle. And then finally, um, uh, we talk about slow variables that are changing. Okay. So those are things that are changing under the surface that we normally don't see. So I think this with the migrant workers that I mentioned before mm. is something that has changed in the Swedish food system for a while. And we haven't noticed this totally because the system still produces the same amount of food. But then when a crisis hit, maybe we see these vulnerabilities occur, uh, coming up to the surface. Right. But we've also talked about how this pandemic mm. is is not just a food crisis, but it's you know part of an environmental crisis. It's part of a social justice crisis, a public health crisis. Mm. And to many people, it's fixing the economy and, and getting access to good health care that are the primary factors right now. Mm. So when you're talking about you know, food system transformation, why do we need to focus on food system transformation right now? Um, So I'll let you continue, Lena, and then Jess, I I want your thoughts on this as well. Well, I think we kind of, uh, it's almost too obvious to me because the food system is is kind of the largest uh, driver for global environmental change. So if we want to um, um, reduce our impact on the environment, we need to look at how the food system is uh, mm. interacting with that. Uh, Jess was pointing to the whole sort of dietary situation and the loss of, re- of our sort of health resilience uh, through the way that we're eating and have that impacting our overall health, etc. So so many aspects of food system come in as central in these yeah. times. Yeah. So and and of course we can also build a better economy by having a good food system as a basis. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just a just few entry food. points, but it's so central. And we eat every day. So by by thinking about the food, you're making decisions every day that matters. Mm. So I mean, food is is so central to society. It's built societies throughout history of time, and food is not only necessary to survive, but it's so important for cultural reasons, livelihoods, pleasure. So mm. to me, um, it, 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 it's odd to not think about food in everyday life and how and where food comes from and when it's working and when it's not. And I really liked Lena's, um, the diversity, the connectivity and the slow variables. And I was thinking about it in the context, again, of putting people at the center of food mm. systems. Mm and how they should change and transform. And I think both of you know in the United States, we're going through a massive social movement right now, Black Lives Matter, Mm. which is really showing the inequities across multiple systems, long-term systemic issues, food being one of them. And I was thinking on diversity, we need more diverse voices calling Mm. on for food system transformation, not just Lena and myself and others who work on research and work on, on, at the global political level, but we need a diversity of voices, particularly those who are marginalized. Connectivity, we need to be thinking about 
who gets access, who gets connected into the food system and making that easier for everyone, giving more people more options. Mm. And in the slow variables, I think I was thinking just more theoretically about how slow and at the same time fast food system transformation has happened, Mm. but it's worked too slowly for some. Mm. Yeah. Some people it hasn't worked and it's been way too slow, way too quiet and way too inactive. Yeah. So I I think you both have convinced our listeners that food is actually worth paying attention to in this pandemic and that when you focus on food, you're you're fixing other things as well. It's mm. it's not just food. So I I really want to look ahead. So if we want to build this more resilient, sustainable food system, Where are some examples that we could look to? Uh, Where are some inspiring stories of of what that future of food might look like? From my perspective, it's a bit too too early to tell on that. Um, There's been a lot of talk, Lene, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective. People say, well, no one's moving around, so maybe we're going to make a dent on on climate change. But Mm. I think that's a bit um, short-sighted as well, that view. Yeah. So, yeah, so what think, are your thoughts? No, but I, I maybe to start off from that, I think that was a very short-sighted mm. because we can see a little dent, and then it, what we often see from crisis is that it actually goes up quicker after. Yeah. So, yeah. so but but I think, and I completely agree. It's too early to tell, and I also can only say the anecdotal things that I see around mm. me, which is not representative from across the world. But, but. Uh, I think it's interesting to see sort of chefs in restaurants that lose all their customers right now, how they team up with retail to to take some of the waste from retail, uh, redistribute it, cook with it, uh, give it to old age homes or hospitals, Mm -hmm. etc., uh, or cook meals for school kids who are losing out their meals in school, etc. I think there are lots of innovations like that uh, around the distribution and the connectivity across um, value chains that I think can be really interesting to look into what that means and how we could build on that into the future. Also farmers who lose their uh, um, the people they sell their produce to right. and then find new avenues uh, through innovative, often these shorter, smaller scale um, uh, value chains. So I think there's also, and especially the farmers and also who have diversified their production systems seem to be able to be, have a little bit of an easier to deal with this situation. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that's a little bit different, but is also the reconnection to green space that we see. And uh, maybe yeah. this is because Sweden is not in total lockdown, but the amount of people that go to nature reserves or hang out in parks and etc. is really increasing. And I hope that that is creating resilience. We don't really know yet, but yeah. it's also sort of experiencing nature in, in another way. Yeah. And I know I'm going a bit long, but I want to mention a word because it's a, a, a Swedish word and that's called smultronställe. It's a place Mm. where wild strawberries grow. And this is sort of where people, it's both in its literal meaning, I mean, people go there and pick strawberries. And it's it's also the places that a lot of people have the most fondness of memories about. So now we also call smultronställe, it's any place that evokes those 
nice feelings and memories and sort of an enjoyable place, sort of. Uh, but I also think that shows us how we can, through sort of foraging, finding t- uh, the tastes and flavors in nature, also sort of reconnect and appreciate uh, nature in new ways. And I hope that during COVID, when people are trying to find new ways of uh, being and spending their time, that maybe they search for a smultron stellen and places where wild strawberries grow can also be a way to sort of build resilience and yeah. and build new connections. Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So we'll have to keep it's our... It's not lost on me that only Sweden would have a term for that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a very Swedish and sort of northern perspective, but it's still, it's, it's an important part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fantastic concept, though. I, I think yeah. there's so much more to talk mm-hmm. about because food systems are so complex. Uh, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. And for many of our listeners, this has been very eye-opening on the linkages between food and the pandemic. So if people wanted to read more, dig into this a bit more, uh, where might they go? Uh, Jess, do you have any resources that you would recommend? Um, I mean, there's for those who want to read more about COVID and the food system, we're curating a blog um, on, on that area, uh, Lawrence Haddad, Corinna Hawks, and myself, on something called nutritionconnect.org. And there's a whole blog series from experts uh, working in the food system and COVID. And, it, and they range from, very, from different places around the world. I would really recommend that. For those who really want to, those who do research and want to understand uh, what food systems look like around the world. We just launched something called the food systems dashboard, right. so food systems dashboard.org where you can look at, uh, different food systems across many different metrics around the world. Um, and, and, and I encourage people to go and explore that site. It's, uh, it's built very much in the spirit of the Johns Hopkins COVID dashboard, which yes, I think many yes. people get on a daily basis. Um, this is the, the, the equivalent, but it's a food systems dashboard. So. so those are great tips. Thank you. And Lena, any resources? I think we can put up some resources also linked to this podcast. But uh, um, I can also just mention uh, both me and Jess actually are part of the jury of something called the Food Planet Prize that is just launched this year. And they're also putting together resources in, in looking at how the food system is connected to the biosphere and and um, sustainability. So I think there there are some really good texts there already. There's also lots of innovations. They highlight some of the sort of entries and and the Food Planet Prize is really trying to um, highlight the innovations in the food system. So if you want to also look for positive examples Mm -hmm. of how people are trying to change the food system to more sustainable food systems, I think that's an interesting place to start. Yeah, I think everyone needs a bit of inspiration and hope. So uh, that's a great resource. Thanks both. As Lena mentioned, these will be up um, online so everyone can access them. Uh, But for now, unfortunately, we need to to leave this conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful discussion and it's been really great to have you here. So thank you so, so much for joining both Jess and Lena. Mm. Thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Stay healthy and safe. Yeah, thanks, you too.
You have listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth.